Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ed Nall. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege and joy to preach to you this morning the third in our series of messages on the 23rd Psalm. So we're going to begin by reading it. It's a Psalm of David. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray for the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is precious. It is true. It has great power. We love your word this morning, Lord. Help us to hear from you this morning about your glory and your goodness, your righteousness, the way that you restore our souls. Help us to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's my privilege this morning to preach on verse 3 of Psalm 23. Um, 23rd Psalm is the most loved of all the 150 Psalms. Most people have memorized it at some point in their lives, uh, many when they were just children. I'm drawn to verse 3 because of the first four words of verse 3, the last four words, and everything in between. But the last four are the reason and the title for this message, which is for his name's sake. Those are words that greatly altered my life. They're the kind of words that when you're reading through, you kind of just glance over them. Very often they're at the end of a phrase, and we don't give them the weight or the attention that they deserve, even though these four words reveal something that is absolutely crucial if we would know God. And that is the thing that he's committed to above all other things, and that is the glory of his name, the glory of his name. So here's where we're going to go this morning. I want to demonstrate from the scriptures first that God's ultimate goal and everything that he does is his own glory. Second, why it is essential and right that God should have as his ultimate goal his own glory. Thirdly, why God's seeking his glory is good news for you and I that should elicit our praise our thanksgiving. And then fourthly, to show how Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, then sacrificed his life to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again to show how Jesus Christ is, in fact, the glory of God. I grew up in downtown Leesburg. I had a very leave-it-to-beaver kind of existence because when I grew up in Leesburg, it was about 5,000 people. Everybody knew Everybody, it was a great way to grow up. I went through all 12 years of school, grade 1 through 12, with the same kids. And when I see them around town now, they still call me Eddie. 
just like my mother does. I grew up on Loudon Street, just about three blocks from the center of town, and our property backed up to the Presbyterian Church in downtown Leesburg, where I was catechized when I was 12 years old. Uh, how many of you were catechized? Okay, this is not a Baptist thing, evidently. Okay. Uh, so these guys, a couple hundred years ago, in Westminster, over in England, got together and they wrote the Westminster Catechism. It took them four and a half years, working five days a week to write it. While they were doing it, they wrote a shorter one for children. 101 questions and answers about God and man and sin and redemption, like that. Question one, great question. What is the chief end of man? Like we would say in the 60s, why am I here? What is the chief end of man? And their answer was, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's right. That is the chief end of man. But what's the chief end of God? What's the chief end of God? What's the thing that he's aimed at with everything that is in him? I never considered it, but I should have. It was right in front of me in the scriptures in that phrase at the end of verse 3 of Psalm 23. For his name's sake. For his name's sake. Here's how I discovered this. Uh, I was in Indonesia with my wife, Heidi. Uh, we were visiting friends of ours who were missionaries there. We went to a restaurant and we ate and I got as sick as I've ever been in my life. And we were there for, I think, about two weeks and I was sick just pretty much the whole time. And I laid in bed a lot of that time and I read a book that my friend Bob Coughlin had given me called The Pleasures of God by John Piper, who has greatly influenced me and the message that you're going to hear today. Piper wrote this 300-page book on the pleasures of God after reading a sentence by a man named Henry Skugel. Henry only lived to be about 29 years old, about 300 years ago. But he wrote this sentence. We're going to put it on the screen. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. I'll say that again. The worth and excellency of a soul can be measured by the object of its love. If you want to know someone, look at the object of their affections. If you want to know someone, look at where they spend their time, where they spend their money, where they spend their thoughts, and then you will know what they love the most. You'll know something important about them. If you want to know God, we have to know what he is committed to with every fiber of his being. What is he committed to above all else? And then you and I must commit ourselves to that same thing. We must be certain to see God as he really is, as he's revealed himself in the scripture, or we, or we will invent a God of our own imagining, a God that we're comfortable with, a God who is like us, but we're really bad God inventors. The gods that we invent end up enslaving us. We don't want to, as Albert Schweitzer said, look down the well of history and just see a reflection of ourselves. So, how do we see him as he is? Theologians and Bible students do this by studying the attributes of God, aspects of God's character. They're usually broken down into two categories. Don't, don't get lost in these. Communicable and incommunicable. And it simply means communicable. These are attributes of God that he shares with us, that he communicates to us. Things like wisdom, love, knowledge, 
things that we can participate in. But there are other aspects of God that he does not share with us because he's not like us. And those are things like omnipotence, all-powerful. Omniscience, he knows everything. Those are different. But there is an aspect of God's character that's not really discussed much these days. It used to be, a long time ago, when theologians got together, and it's this one. Simplicity. God is simple. How can God be simple? Here's how. Let's draw a contrast that will help us see God's simplicity. You and I are complicated, right? I'm complicated. My wife knows that. And my wife is complicated. She's very pretty. She's a great mom. She is the love of my life. And she's complicated. Because <laughs> our motives are mixed. And our goals can shift from day to day. And our lives are complicated by sin. But it's not that way with God. He doesn't have any mixed motives. He has no sin. He cannot, he will not, and he must not change from day to day. And he does everything that he does ultimately for one reason. And that is for his glory, for his name's sake. But you don't have to take my word for it. We're going to take a little tour through the scriptures. I think I have about six of them. I'll ask a question. The scripture will answer it. Why did God create us? Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He created us for his glory. Why did God choose a people for himself and make Israel his possession? Jeremiah 13. I made the whole house of Israel cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and here it is, a glory. Why did God rescue his people out of bondage in Egypt after 430 years of slavery? Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wonderful works, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And why did God use his sovereign power to bring back his people after the exile, after punishing generations of sin? Isaiah 48 puts it like this. This is as strong as you'll see it. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And why did Jesus come to earth and to his final decisive hour? In the first verse of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And why will Jesus come again one day? Christ is coming, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, at the end of this age to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at by all who believe. There are at least a hundred more passages of Scripture that are like this. I used to just read over these phrases 
about, about God's acting for the sake of his name or for his praise or for his glory and not pay a lot of attention, but we may not. If we fail to see that God's greatest goal is his own glory, we will never understand large portions of God's truth. And we'll never understand what our ultimate goal is, his glory. And we will fail to live our lives in the way that God has designed it, for his glory and consequently for our joy. God provides joy for his people, and the 23rd Psalm is shot through with joy for the people of God, for the sake of God's name. We'll take a little tour. Here's what Psalm says. I will lack nothing I need. I will rest in lush pastures beside still waters. The good shepherd will restore my soul. My life will be on the right path. God will prepare a feast for me. My cup will overflow. Goodness and mercy will follow me. And here's the best thing yet. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of these blessings are part and possible part and parcel of God's glorifying himself and giving joy to us. They're connected. Now, I want to deal with two possible objections because sometimes people kind of resist this idea that God does everything for his glory. First objection, we don't like people that are enamored with themselves. So why would we want God to be this way? I have three answers for you. One, God's not a man. What's proper, indeed, unavoidable for the king of kings would not be right for us, but it is right for God. Second answer. If God valued anything more than the glory of his name, he would be an idolater because he would have taken something of lesser value and put it above his glory, and there is nothing above his glory. God's not an idolater. He preserves his glory for us. Thirdly, when God acts to preserve the glory of his name, he's acting to preserve the thing that gives us a sure and certain hope. God's commitment to his own glory is the measure of his commitment to our joy in life. Second possible objection to God's doing everything that he does for his own glory, seeking one's own glory is not loving. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love seeks not its own. So how can God say in Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake I act, my glory I will not give to another. How can he say that? If God is a God of love, doesn't he love us? Isn't he acting on our behalf? So is God for his own glory or is God for us? Here's the answer, yes. If God were to abandon the goal of his own self-exaltation, you and I would be the losers because his aim to bring praise to himself and to bring joy to us are a single aim. They stand or fall together. We can see this if we ask the following question. What would God give us in order to be the most loving? What's the best thing in the world that he could give us? There's only one real answer. Just as a husband who loves his wife gives himself to his bride, just as a bride who loves her husband gives herself to her husband, God loves us and so he gives us himself. That's the great gift. 
Let's see it in the scriptures. I love this verse from Psalm 27, verse 4. This is King David, who's got a palace that's bigger than the temple. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's the one thing that David wants. He wants to be with God. That's joy. Our shepherd, the good shepherd, leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake so that we can gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple so that we can be with God forever. Here's another way that God gives us himself in Ephesians 2, 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, his people, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to what? To the Father. Access to God, the Father. Not just forgiveness of sins, that's really important. But it's not just that. It's a relationship with God where we will see beauty beyond anything we can imagine in this life, and we will see it forever, the glory of God. I just finished my uh, one-year Bible reading plan. I don't know if I'm early or late, but I finished it. And, uh, of course, the last, the last chapter is Revelation 22. And you read in there that when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we won't need the sun because the glory of God will be our light. There won't be any sin filtering it out. There won't be any sin that's caused the world to not be what it's supposed to be. The glory of God will be our light. And here's one more way that God gives us himself. 1 Peter 3. Christ died for our sins once for all. The righteous, that's Christ, for the unrighteous, that's us, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. God pursues us with goodness and mercy to give us what is best. Not prestige, not wealth, not power, but himself. A rich fellowship with himself. And God gave us himself in Christ, who according to Hebrews 1 is the radiance of God's glory, there's God's glory again, and the exact representation of his being, Christ died, of course, so that we could have forgiveness of sin, but he did it in a way that upheld God's righteousness and glory because sin was still punished on the back of Jesus Christ. And forgiveness was offered once the penalty was paid. And he did it to bring us into a relationship with God. That's the relationship for which you and I were designed. God himself is the goal. God preserves his unchanging glory for us so that we won't just have temporal happiness, but everlasting joy. God's commitment to his own glory means that when God establishes the new heavens and the new earth, the most important thing will be there, and that's God himself in all of his glory, unfiltered by sin. To me, when I was laying in a bed in Indonesia, sick as a dog, This was a grand discovery, and it changed the course of my life. God's glory and my enjoyment of it, which I had learned about as a child and 
at Presbyterian Church, but really didn't understand was God's aim in everything that he did. And that is the truth that sustains my hope. God gets the glory, and as he glorifies himself, he fully commits himself to be the good shepherd of the sheep. So, why don't more of us experience the joy that God wants us to have? I think it's pretty simple. Because we don't aim our lives at the thing that God aims his life at. Because we don't aim our lives at God's glory, but we aim it at something else, some pitiful pleasure. And so our lives and our loves, as Augustine would say, are disordered. Our loves are disordered. We love something lesser more than we love the ultimate, so our loves and our lives are disordered. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we are too easily pleased. Then I'm going to paraphrase. We accept substandard joy like a child who plays in a mud puddle when God is offering that child a vacation in Disney World. We are far too easily pleased. So here's a brief review of where we've been so far. God's ultimate aim is his glory. It's right for God to aim at his glory. In fact, it's our only hope. And he is included in his glory as part of that which glorifies him, our joy for all who trust in him. What is the appropriate response to joy? I'm going to illustrate the next point like this. Heidi and I uh, go to New York City. We go to Manhattan about once a year. And we stay for three or four days, and we go to see beauty and excellence. Beauty and excellence. To see and hear the New York Philharmonic at the Lincoln Center to hear jazz at Birdland or a big band on Monday nights at the Village Vanguard that's been playing there every Monday night for 60 years or great shows on Broadway or a concert at Carnegie Hall, stunning architecture, the beautiful Central Park right in the middle of the city and great meals. You can fall down in Manhattan and look up and you'll see a good restaurant. And when we do this together, we praise what we enjoy. We praise what we enjoy. We went to see Sutton Foster, who my wife says is my girlfriend, even though we've never met, starring in Anything Goes, this great show written by Cole Porter in the 1930s. And there was a nine-minute-long song and dance number with amazing choreography. The whole cast is involved, wonderful singing, and it ebbs and it flows, and finally it reaches its climax and the audience rises to their feet, and they applaud. <clears throat> There's this old guy sitting a couple rows away from us. And as the applause is dying down, he stands up and he goes, that's the way you do it. That's the way you do it. Right in the middle of the show. Yeah. He praised what they were doing because he saw excellence, and he enjoyed it, just like we all do. That's the way you do it. Now, once we see God's glory, praise should be our response. But why praise? Does God need us to praise him? No. We need to praise God. Here's an extended quote from C.S. Lewis about the reason that we praise God. And I have found this to be very helpful in my life. I hope you do too. It's from his Reflections on the Psalms. 
The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, had strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, and even sometimes if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Readers praise their favorite author. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. There is praise of weather, wines, actors, athletes, horses, colleges, countries. Praise of children, flowers. Praise of mountains, even rare stamps. And sometimes even politicians. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards as supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else that we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And that's why the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to praise him forever. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest pastor or theologian America has ever produced, explained it this way 270 years ago. Listen closely. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. And he added, joy is the great ingredient in praise, and praise is the most joyful work in the world. Therefore, if God is truly for us, if he would give us his best make our joy full, he must make it his aim to win our praise for himself. So, God leads us in paths of righteousness and restores our souls and saves us from our sins and promises that we will live with him forever, all for the sake of his name, ultimately. Therefore, you and I should aim our lives at the glory of his name, living in a manner worthy of our court, of our calling, enjoying God as we praise his name forever. So, how does God seeking his own glory and praise fit together with the image of the Lord as a shepherd who cares for his people in Psalm 23? I think it's like this. Part of God's glorification will be salvation of sinners, salvation of lost sheep. God's glory is not an arrogant glory that comes riding into town, like Tim mentioned on Easter Sunday, on the biggest, most beautiful, the most powerful horse. Our Savior comes riding into town on a donkey, very humbly. And he does that on his way to lay down his life for the sheep. It is stunningly humble. It's a beautiful humility that deserves the highest praise. Why? Because greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. 
Somebody asked me the other night at small group uh, if there's any practical application for this message. And there is. And if I ever give a message where there's no practical application, just fire me right away. The first four words of Psalm 23.3, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. No matter what you're facing in your life, no matter what kind of brokenness, sorrow, pain, sin, whatever it is, the healing of our souls begins by restoring the glory of God to its rightful place at the center of our affections. I'll say that again. The healing of our souls begins by restoring the glory of God to its rightful place at the center of our affections. How can that take place, this healing of the soul? 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, there's the key, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If you want to be more like Jesus, look at him. Look at him in the Scriptures. Gaze upon his beauty and his power the transformation of your life into his image will begin. The next phrase in verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Some translations say the right path. You have to know the destination in order to find the right path. When you open up your Google Maps, you're not going to get any directions until you tell them what the destination is. Our psalm tells us what the destination is. It's to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the conclusion. That's the goal of the psalm. Or Psalm 1611 puts it this way, You have shown me the path of life, the right path. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's the destination. Then the last phrase of verse 3, For his name's sake, for his glory. You can see God's glory all around you. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament displays his handiwork, Psalm 119. 19. But where do you go to see the glory of God most fully? You look at Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God. You look at Jesus Christ to see the glory of God. So I'm going to close with a passage of Scripture. You've probably heard it before. It's just six verses long. It's all about Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it slowly. I want you to let it sink in. This is the glory of God revealed to us in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, listen to this, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever walked on the earth, who perfectly obeyed and glorified God in everything that he did, every word he spoke, every deed, every thought. And if you will gaze upon his beauty, look at Jesus Christ in the scriptures, see his glory and his righteousness, and if you will trust only in his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead, you'll have joy and you will praise him forever. If you've never trusted in Christ, let this be the day. And if you have trusted in him, trust in him even more. and Aim your life at his glory. There's nothing better in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of your kindness to us. Thank you for being absolutely committed to upholding the glory of your name so that one day when we see you face to face, we will see your glory as it is and we will rejoice forever. We will rejoice forever. We will praise you forever. We will live life like it was designed to be lived. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone in the room that doesn't know you, would you speak to them even today? Cause them by your grace to repent of sin and to believe in you. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you do for us, for being the good shepherd who restores our soul and leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of your name. Amen. Uh, Tim and I are going to be up front. Anybody wants to talk with us about anything at all, we would love to pray with you about anything. Feel free to come on up. And ladies, if you haven't gotten a flower yet, we have some folks who are going to be standing at the door and give you a, a single rose as you leave for Mother's Day. Have a great Sunday.